This morning we will be looking at worship, the joyful duty of Christians. Our keywords for our children are worship, joy, and duty. If you're joining us for the first time, again, welcome. We're glad to have you. We are right in the middle of a series called Life Together. And we are looking at three aspects of our life together, community, truth, and mission. And we are looking now at uh, this section called truth. And we've looked at authority, the authority of God and the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the church and the authority of one another in the Christian life. Last week we looked at the relationship between God's law and the gospel. And so now this morning we look at worship. Now, I assume that when I use that word worship, it already conjures up all sorts of different ideas in our minds. And if all of us sort of collectively put that thought together in the same place, uh, we would see that there are many different ideas of that. So what is worship? How do you answer that question? How do we worship and why is it important? I would assume that some of us are thinking about worship in terms of what we're doing right now. Others consider worship to be our time uh, as we sing together, as we sing songs with one another. Perhaps for you, you you view worship and think of it as your time alone in your car uh, as you sing along with the radio. Uh, For others, maybe it's your private time of prayer and Bible study. There may be some of you that are thinking right now, but wait a minute, the Bible says that all of life is worship, so there's no distinction between what we do here, what we do in our homes, what we do at our jobs, and on and on. And that very word worship, we hear of worship songs and worship gatherings and worship bands and worship wars and worship centers and family worship and private worship and idol worship and corporate worship. It's no wonder that as we come to this, that so many are so confused about what true biblical worship actually is. And to that, of course, we can also add Uh, contemporary worship, traditional worship, liturgical worship, blended worship, mystical worship. All of this raises questions of the means of worship and the forms of worship and the circumstances of worship and what elements we turn to in our worship. It's all very exhausting, right? But it is very, very important. There's so much confusion and so many differing ideas about what worship truly is because of forgetting to ask the most important question. And as with everything we look at, that question is, what does the Bible teach? How does the Bible answer the question of what is worship? So our aim this morning is to answer that question. What is true biblical worship? And how has it worked out in the lives of individual believers, in our homes, and in our corporate gathering as the church? We're going to begin this morning in John chapter 4. If you would like to join me there in your Bibles, we will be in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
John 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, we'll stop there. Notice that word in verse 4, had. He had to pass through Samaria. It's interesting because passing through Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee is exactly what most Jews did not do. They took the longer route around. They didn't want to go through Samaria. Why? D.A. Carson explains, After the Assyrians captured Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, in 722-21 to B.C., they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile of the southern kingdom in Babylon, Jews returned to their homeland and viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. About 400 B.C., the Samarians erected a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So what we have here is Ethic, uh, uh, ethnic, racial, and religious issues that made the Jews feel complete disdain for the Samaritan. They were ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. They were racially impure. They were religiously heretical. And therefore, they were completely avoided by the Jews lest they become unclean. But this did not seem to be an issue for Jesus. The Scriptures don't say that He decided to go through Samaria. They say very clearly He had to go through Samaria. That's an important distinction to make. Let's read on. So, He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus was tired. We see his full humanity here. And conveniently, he rests at the well at noon. The sixth hour is noon. First part of verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Okay, so what's, what's wrong here? A few things. First of all, it's noon. And a woman is drawing water from the well at noon. Now, in their culture, women would do this together in the morning, in the early morning. Partly because of the heat, but also uh, for their protection. So we're going to look at, in a minute, why did she forego uh, cooler temperatures and her safety at noon to draw water from the well alone? Now, secondly, another problem that we're going to see here is we have a 
Samaritan woman who's about to have an encounter with a Jewish man. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So, we have a Jew in Samaria at the well. The disciples are in town getting food. He asks the unclean Samaritan woman for a drink of water from her bucket, and instantly she knows this is a big deal. This is a problem. There is an issue here. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Instantly she sees that this is a big deal. Why is this man asking anything of me, let alone to drink from my bucket? Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, we see that she doesn't get it. Right? She looks at Jesus and says, You want water? Where's your bucket? You need a bucket to plumb the depths of this well and draw water. And Jesus says, Listen, I'm not concerned with this water. I am concerned with living water that once consumed leaves no man thirsty. She doesn't get it. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Again, she doesn't get it. She's just like the Pharisee Nicodemus, right? When he came to Jesus and Nicodemus asked Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, uh, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, really? Like, I I need to climb back inside of my mother's womb and be born again? Same concept here. The woman is saying, you have living water for me? Where's your bucket? Give me some of this water. What's the problem? They're blind. They're unable to discern that which Jesus is speaking of. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, what Jesus does here is very important. Why is this woman not understanding 
Why is she so blind to the reality of this living water? Because of her life of sin. Her inner life is voraciously guarded against anything that might expose this reality of her sin. It's too painful. It's too dirty. Why was she alone at the well at noon? Because she was shamed. She was outcast. Years of sexual and relational sin. She wasn't going to be with the other women. They wanted nothing to do with her. And Jesus knows her blindness and her hardness of heart, and He intentionally exposes her inner life. God means for something very important to happen in this woman's life, but in her present condition, she is blind to the living water. She is dead. She is hardened. She is blind. So Jesus sees and knows this and He will not stay on the surface with her. Immediately He points out her sin. So how does she respond? Well, she responds the same way all of us do when we attempt to avoid conviction of sin. Verse 19, The woman said to Him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What does she do? She changes the subject completely. Aha! You have an amazing insight. You must be a prophet. So then, riddle me this, Batman. As long as we're speaking about my five husbands and my sexual sin, please enlighten me as to your theological and philosophical stance in regards to where one should worship God. So she turned into an academic theologian very quickly, didn't she? Very interesting though, Jesus goes with it. He never goes back to the issue of adultery. And if you think back to last week, what has He done here? What has He done with her sin? He has used the law that's already written on her heart to expose her sin. It was a blow against this sealed door of her heart. His foot was already in the door though, so He wasn't going to go down that road anymore. He simply used her question to finish the saving work in her life. A few more verses and she will be a new creation in Christ. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus has moved the conversation from the where of her question, where should we worship, now to the how. In other words, it's not the location that makes worship authentic. It's not merely externally based on one, where one goes, but how one is to worship. So as with everything Jesus addresses, the issue here is the heart. 
And then he addresses the object of worship. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the object of worship. All of our worship, if it is to be authentic, is centered on Jesus. And His response was with what God is interested in. What He has always been interested in. Worshippers who worship Him, how? Verse 24 says, in spirit and in truth. So the Samaritans focused on location, on mountains, on Gerizim and Ebal. Not on the temple in Jerusalem. And they used this argument to not only justify their differences in worship, but also their separation from God's people altogether. But Jesus is saying, what matters is not where, but how and who. True Christian worship is centered on Christ and is in spirit and in truth. So what does that, what does that mean? What does in spirit and in truth mean? Spirit. Not ours, but the Holy Spirit. Several times in the book of John, he refers to the Spirit of Truth. So we worship in the Holy Spirit. And truth, God Himself, Jesus Himself, who in John 14, 6, said of Himself, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we worship in the Holy Spirit and in Christ. So the call to worship in spirit and in truth is a direct attack on heartless worship. The false worship of the Samaritans, the false, even though it was perhaps sincere. The worship seen throughout the Old Testament that is continuously rebuked and the heartless worship of believers today. According to Christ, acceptable worship is now all about how we relate to Him. And so He opens this door for our understanding of what true Christian worship is. It is in spirit and in truth. It is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, let's add to this. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. What does this worship in spirit and in truth look like? Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. So what does Isaiah immediately fix on when he enters into worship? Is it music? 
Is it instruments that may be playing? Is it comfortable seats or coffee in the foyer? What does he fix on immediately? He fixes on the glory of God. He enters into the temple and sees the glory of God. He continues, verse 2, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So, at all of this, as he sees the glory of God, as the glory of God is manifest in his presence, what is his response? Is he all of a sudden pumped up and excited and shouting and cheering and energized? No, verse 5, I said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The beginning place of all true biblical worship is a place of understanding and seeing the transcendent majesty of the Lord of hosts. And coming before Him, not with something I am giving, something I am offering, something I have for God, but rather empty-handed humility that drives me to see instantly that God is holy and God is righteous and God is perfect and I am not. We worship not because we have something great to give to God, but rather to encounter His glory, to be awestruck by His majesty. In Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 34, the Apostle Paul is addressing the men of Athens in the Areopagus on a place called Mars Hill. So he takes quick inventory, he walks around and he sees that there are various idols scattered about. and There's statues and various temples of sorts and altars. And these were the objects of their worship. And quickly he turns to the issue of proclaiming the God that they called unknown. They had an altar to the unknown God. So the God, unknown to them, Paul argues with them, is the one true God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Creator of all things. And most interesting in this interaction is the beginning of Paul's explanation. He says to the men of Athens, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, And here it is, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Likewise, Romans 11.35, Paul writes, Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? 
Indeed, God reminded the lowly Job of this reality. Job 41.11 Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. And in light of all of it, Paul calls us to consider in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So how do we... What, what do these truths do to our understanding of worship? God is not served by human hands. God does not need anything... We cannot give anything to God as though He might be repaid. Everything that we have, we have received from God. What does this do to our understanding of worship? I think many Christians understand worship as coming before God to give something to Him. But true Christian worship, as I see it in the Bible and as we see here in Isaiah 6, is receiving something great from God. Now, first thought, that may seem shocking. For some of you, it may seem very unbiblical. But I think this is exactly what Paul is getting at when he says God is not served by human hands. If God is not served by human hands, and if we are able to give a gift to God because all that exists is rightfully His in the first place, a proper understanding of worship must be that we are going to Him empty-handed. And if you get this, it's monumental. It's groundbreaking. It is earth-shattering and life-changing because all of the sudden we are now freed up to reflect back to God His worth and His magnificence with joy unbound from the chains of obligation as though I can conjure up something of worth to bring before God. I cannot. And so here's where the tension resolves. Approaching God in receive mode is to approach God with the understanding that He alone can satisfy and that He alone is worthy of our complete devotion. And when this happens, you are reflecting the glory of God. And as we say that, we are to glorify God. I think of that not as though we are adding to His glory. We cannot. As though we have something to bring. But rather, if you think of yourself as a perfectly cut diamond that you can hold up into the hot summer savannah sun on the hottest day in August, what happens to that light in that diamond? It refracts in a thousand directions. This is what it is to glorify God. We're not adding to His glory. We are simply refracting His glory for all the world to see. To glorify God is to expand our view of God and to expand our treasuring of Him above all things. To see Him more like He truly is. So to worship God is to go to God with the understanding of His worth and of His value, longing to be united more intimately with Him for our joy. 
This is why God requires us to worship. Not because He needs you to tell Him of His worth. He's well aware. Not because He needs to be reassured that He is God. He knows He is God. And He tells us time and again in the Scriptures. God requires that every man everywhere worship Him because it is what is best for man. When we're thirsty and when we are parched, we go to the source of water to be refreshed. And likewise, when our souls are thirsty, we need the water of life that we would never thirst again. So as we worship God, we are filled with a deep satisfaction that He is lavishing upon us the greatest gift that we will ever receive. Himself. Worship is for your joy, because rightly placed joy is the greatest means available to glorify God, thus achieving our purpose in the world. I think the Westminster Catechism gets it so right. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of man? Why does man exist? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we glorify God? By enjoying God. So as we approach God in worship, don't assume that you're doing something great for Him. Be assured that He is doing the greatest thing for you. And so the question may then rise, do we have to worship God? Well, first, I would question why you wouldn't want to if this is the greatest source of all joy. But He demands it. And He makes abundantly clear that one day everyone will worship Christ. Some willingly and most unwillingly. The Scriptures say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the earth, above the earth, under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so worship is our duty. We must worship. But worship is where we experience our greatest measure of joy. The two are beautiful realities that work together. We don't worship out of legal obligation. We worship knowing that as God requires it, He requires it because it is what is greatest for us. Now let's introduce another important aspect of our worship and how it is all worked out. Many of you are probably thinking of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What is this? He says, this is your spiritual worship. So Paul has given 11 chapters of theology in the book of Romans. Chapter 1 through 11 is all theology. And at the very end of Chapter 11, he is revealing all of these great truths of God. That mankind is fallen and evil and wicked and his heart is set against God. He is at enmity with God. And yet, 
He sent Christ to redeem a people for Himself. And He goes on to explain what that looks like and how it is that God has called a people onto Himself. And He is overcome with joy and He falls in worship. And He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are Your judgments! How inscrutable are Your ways! Who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. Glory be unto you forever and ever. Amen. And that's how he ends chapter 11. And he instantly goes into chapter 12 and he says, Therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is spiritual worship. In other words, all of life in one degree is worship. So do it. So we must see that as we define worship, that there is an informal, minute-by-minute worship of God in the Christian life as we praise Him for His blessings, as we depend on Him in our suffering and in our sorrows, as we acknowledge Him on our lips, as we think of Him in our minds, as we treasure Him in our hearts. All of this is the minute-by-minute worship of God that Paul is speaking of. But there is also some very important structured worship to be in our lives as well. So that we may be people of robust, helpful, joy-producing discipline for the glory of God. I think mainly this takes shape in three ways. And this was... Uh, this was the puritanical idea of, of worship, that there are three manifestations of structured worship in our lives. And we'll look at each one of them. First, private worship. John Bunyan once wrote, He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find Him the rest of the day. This was true in the 1600s. And it is true today. One who lacks the discipline of daily private worship also lacks a close experiential relationship with God. In Romans 8.29, the Apostle Paul wrote, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So Christians are being molded into Christ-likeness but not without a rigorous, disciplined effort in worship. This is Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is a call to faithful, persistent devotion to God that He has given to man to trust and love and have communion with Him. So private worship is the means by which man experiences a personal relationship with God. It is a fulfillment of the command to train or to discipline yourself for godliness. In its most simple definition, private worship is the doing of spiritual disciplines. A great book by Donald Whitney called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. He writes, The only road to Christian maturity and godliness 
which is a biblical term synonymous with Christ-likeness and holiness, passes through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. Godliness is the goal of the disciplines, and when we remember this, the spiritual disciplines become a delight instead of a drudgery. And these are things like reading our Bibles, studying our Bibles, praying and fasting, to name a few. But true worship is cultivated by times of intentional and focused use of the means of grace that God gives us every single day. And this is exactly how one is transformed by the renewal of our mind. This is Romans 12, 2. Give your life to worship. How do we do it, Paul? Transform your Minds, renew your minds. For faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. How do we grow in our faith should we not hear the Word of God? Should we not daily feast on the Word of God? So spiritual disciplines are those things which promote spiritual growth that God has given to us for our good and our use. Now, as with all biblical paradoxes, it's important to acknowledge the the both-and relationship of private worship. Since it is for the purpose of godliness, man is responsible to take faithful action to cultivate this work. But it's very clear from the Scriptures that this is a work that only God can do. In other words, godliness is our responsibility and it's God's sovereign work. Don't try and relieve the tension. It's an important tension. God grants godliness as a divine gift of grace. This is His continued work in our lives called sanctification. But every man is responsible in his life and in his actions. And God will give Christians new affections and new desires and new longings that please Him through the means that He has made available to us. Now, Bible reading and prayer are not the only aspects of private worship, but they are of utmost importance. Our ability to pray, our ability to sing, our ability to focus our hearts and minds on God is all informed by the words that God has inspired for our benefit. Again, Donald Whitney writes, No spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's Word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of Scripture. And if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. The Bible is filled with the very words that Paul says angels long to look. Isn't it tragic that where angels long to look, we can't always be bothered to even glance? Perhaps we have begun to take God's blessings for granted. So if you come to your private worship feeling weary and wanting to get it over with as quickly as possible, stop and think about the privilege that you have been given. You are able to meet with your Creator. You are invited to encounter Almighty God, to hear from Him, to worship Him. What better reason could there possibly be to set the necessary time aside to worship Him in private? We must. 
Secondly is family worship. And I'm not going to go very deep here except to say this. If your home is not daily filled with intentional worship unto God collectively in your family, then how is your home any different than your neighbor's? Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so we see a constant daily moving teaching of the word, cultivating of the word in the lives of children, in the life of the family. Sometimes informal, but also formally, that there is time set aside in each family for this. And if there are children, who is responsible for this? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 tells us this daily family worship is the responsibility of the Father. If it's just a husband and a wife in a home, then they should be studying together and praying together. But parents, take this on yourselves daily to lead your children. And we have plenty of resources to help you do that. And I pray that you will imagine what our collective family of faith would be if we each took up this family worship in our homes daily. Thirdly, corporate worship. I have a lot to say about this, but I will be very brief. Our private and our family worship work together throughout the week to build up to the pinnacle of the week, which is right now. This, I hope you see, is the high point of the week in the Christian life. That we are gathering together with our brothers and our sisters to celebrate the grace of God in our lives together as we sing and as we pray and as we receive the Word, as we participate in the ordinances of, of the church and as we give to the work of the ministry. This is the high point as we gather together and unite our hearts to worship the one true and living God. And our private worship and our family worship are working together through the week to cultivate our hearts and to build our hearts and to give us something great to celebrate as we come together, even in the midst of sorrow. Even in the midst of suffering. Now we believe here in what we call the regulative principle of worship. There are Books upon books written on this, and so I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface. But I will say that it is terribly misunderstood. In most simple terms, it means that we will only do in our worship corporately 
what we are told to do in the worship of the Bible. As you look through the Old Testament, it is concerned with explaining and describing and regulating Israel's worship of God through the sacrificial system and through the temple, and it includes where and what they're to do and even what clothes they're to wear. But it is important to see that the issue is still the heart, the heart of worship. If you consider Leviticus chapter 10, Verses 1 and 2, we see how important how we worship is to God. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, it appears that Nadab and Abihu may have very well had good motives. But those motives didn't matter much, did they? Why? Because God expects to be worshipped in a certain way. And they did not do so. Likewise today, because Scripture is the all-sufficient Word of God, everything that we do in worship must be prescribed by the Bible. God cares about how He is approached by His people. And the Bible suggests that if we are left to our own devices, not only will we fail to approach God in the way that honors Him, we will certainly dishonor Him. So worship must be a reflection of God's character, not ours. So what is commanded of us in Scripture in our worship? Very simply. Prayers, singing, preaching, reading publicly the Word of God, giving of our offering for the work of the church, and participating in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's it. So as we gather on the Lord's Day, you will not come here for corporate worship and see a skit or a musical or a puppet show or a dance or anything else. You will pray, you will sing, you will hear the Word of God preached, you will give of your offerings, you will participate in the ordinances. This is what the Scriptures command. This is what we stick to. We need not add to it, and we certainly need not take away. Now, each of these things has various forms. For example, the Scriptures speak of in our singing that we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we see that in music alone, there is various forms of doing this. That there will be a great variety in the things that we sing. But all of it was, is within their proper elements. So very simply, the regulative principle teaches us to read the Bible, to preach the Bible, to pray the Bible, to sing the Bible, and to see the Bible and the ordinances. And in all of this, there is a lot of liberty, but it is within the defined elements. And this is a big issue, and we could talk about this for hours because it is very important. And if you're in my Sunday school class, we'll talk about it in about four or five weeks. So our worship must be done privately, 
It must be done in our families. And it must be done together corporately. Seeing and tasting and savoring God together. God is good and God is all satisfying and He is much to be desired. And all of our worship, all of our worship must be fueled by the gospel. As I, as I reflected on this last night, it was about 11.30 last night, I was thinking about this fuel. And I was brought to a place where I understood afresh all of my inadequacies, all of my inabilities to come before God and offer anything of great worth. And so the Gospel calls me not to come to Him as someone great, as someone all cleaned up, but to come to Him to see that great work that He will do in transforming our lives and making us more and more into Christ-like sons and daughters of Him. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is not the ABCs of our faith, that which gets us in the door so we can learn greater and greater things. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the A to Z of our faith. And we need it in every aspect of our faith. And the very worship that we bring as we gather, as we sit in our study, as we gather with our families in our homes, is all fueled by this great reality that we have no reason to worship apart from Christ. We have nothing to offer apart from the redemptive work of Christ. We have no hope in this life apart from Christ. And so our worship must be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We'll end with this. Our worship here and now is a rehearsal for the future. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5. If God is the greatest source of all of our joy, if there is nothing greater in all the universe to behold in fullness and to desire outside of God, then what might we expect eternity looks like? A constant, joy-filled, Christ-centered worship of God's people around the throne. Let's read chapter 5 of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll and from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, for every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Let's pray. Father, let us live in this great rehearsal for the rest of eternity. That we would prepare our hearts for eternal things which is the forever worship of Christ. Not just us, but all of your people throughout all of history gathered together. Not divided by class, not divided by ethnicity, not divided by region of the world we came from, but mingled together as your people, as brothers and sisters, redeemed by you, the bride of Christ, made to come together to worship the bridegroom, Christ Jesus, who sits on the throne, whose robe fills the temple with glory, and at whose presence the very foundations shake, and in whose presence is no dark. Father, we long for that great day of light to gather with every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to proclaim loudly, worthy is the Lamb who is slain, who was and is and for us now, who is yet to come again. Father, help us to live lives of worship. Cultivate in our hearts a greater desire for the great means that you have given to us to worship you in our homes, in our prayer closets. As we read the Scriptures, as we hear the words of God, as we gather with our families and worship together, as we gather corporately, Father, let us not take what we do lightly. We are experiencing but a taste of the glory of heaven 
and yet it is a taste. Let us enjoy it. Let us savor it. Let us long for more of it. Father, give us a great desire for worship to understand that we come to You empty-handed and that You will fill us with greater measures of joy in Christ Jesus. Give us a greater longing for Him, for Your glory, for our continued and lasting joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.